You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1875th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 21st of April 2022. The editor of this edition is Sue Aitchison, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Sue Cunningham-Snell and Harvey Johnson. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. And we will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And now, as usual, we will move to our headlines. And my first headline is, In an emergency, there is no one there. Mum told she'd have to wait 18 hours for an ambulance. There has been a terrible mess around the fibre work. VJ Day Memorial is added to gardens. Shortage of parking blamed for man's fall. A mother who was suffering heart attack symptoms was flabbergasted to be told there was an 18-hour wait for an ambulance. Hannah Clark, who is 32, a mother of two from Barrow, said she had the worst chest pains she'd ever experienced on the night of Tuesday, April the 5th, that spread to her left arm. After getting advice from her mum, a nurse, Mrs Clark said she called 111 and was told an ambulance would be dispatched. She said that after three hours, the ambulance service called her and told her the current waiting time for an emergency ambulance was 18 hours and they were cancelling the request on the basis she could walk and could therefore drive herself to hospital. Mrs Clark, a single parent, said this was despite her telling them she was alone with her two young children who were asleep at the time. She has complained to the service. An East of England ambulance service spokesman said they wanted to offer their sincere apologies to the patient for any distress caused and would be investigating the complaint. Across England, ambulance response time targets were missed for all categories, 1st to the 4th in February, according to the most recent data from NHS England. The longest someone should have to wait is three hours, and that is for Category 4 or less urgent scenarios. For Category 1, calls immediately life-threatening injuries and illnesses. Patients should be responded to within an average mean time of seven minutes. And for Category 2, call emergency, the average response time should be 18 minutes. Mrs Clark said she was flabbergasted by what had happened, adding it was an unacceptable way to treat someone with heart attack symptoms. In her complaint to the service, she said, I was left last night feeling helpless, scared and vulnerable, and now feel that actually in an emergency there is no one there. I understand there are pressures, but people are going to die at the hands of the NHS and ambulance service over being saved. An East of England ambulance service spokesman said, We take all complaints seriously and will be investigating to ensure feedback is used to develop and improve our service. The service had experienced sustained high levels of demand throughout last winter and into 2022, as well as an increase in COVID-related absences among staff. It was working with hospitals to get ambulances back on the road more quickly, the service said. In February, the trust average mean response time for Category 1 calls was 10.43 minutes. Sorry, 10.43. 43 minutes, yes. And for Category 2 calls, it was 53.44 minutes. 
A Department of Health and Social Care spokesman said they had investigated £55 million for ambulance trust to be boost staff numbers in control rooms and on the front line. NHS England was contacted for comment. A Bury St Edmunds mum, hit with fines during parking bay suspensions, has discovered more than 70 penalty charges were issued in two streets within two weeks. Chantelle Smiley of Whiting Street made a Freedom of Information request to West Suffolk Council after she received five tickets for unwittingly parking in Westgate Street during bay suspensions for City Fibre Works in February. Her request asked how many penalty charge notices were issued in Guildhall Street between December 11th to 14th and in Westgate Street between February 7th to 14th, while suspended parking bay signs were up. She was told 43 penalty charges were issued in Guildhall Street, with 41 of those due to being parked in a suspended parking bay, while 31 penalties were issued during the Westgate Street suspension, with 29 of those due to being parked in a suspended parking bay. I spoke to City Fibre and the man told me they weren't meant to be working in Westgate Street between February 7th to the 15th, which makes me wonder why the signs were kept up. Again, in December in Guildhall Street, there was no work carried out on those days, said Chantel. It's a pity neither City Fibre or the council has offered to refund us. Chantel is not the only resident permit holder to have been affected by City Fibre parking suspensions, which have been imposed in several Bury locations in recent months. Patrick Grant received a ticket for parking in a suspended bay in Westgate Street on January the 30th. His appeal was rejected, despite pictures taken by the civil enforcement officer clearly showing Patrick's dashboard note stating, Is this bay suspended? Honestly, I could not tell if it's suspended. Before giving me a ticket, please call me. I live two seconds away and will happily move it. He said, the wardens are out of control, completely unacceptable. Another resident who wished to remain anonymous said, there has been a terrible mess around the roadwork installing broadband and the process has been managed extremely badly by the council and also by the contractor. A lot of tickets have been issued on suspended parking bays as a result of poor signage and a lack of space for residents to find a place. Lorraine Edwards of Northgate Street said problems during City Fibre Works there included bays having suspension dates changed overnight. Ross Holmes, also of Northgate Street, was fined for parking in a suspended bay despite no works going on around it. I left my car in the bay from around 11pm on a Saturday until 9.15am Sunday and managed to get a ticket during that time. I specially got out of bed to move my car and still got a ticket at 9.05am. Joke, really, said Ross. Another anonymous reader, who lives in St John's Street, received a ticket after parking in a suspended bay in Ipswich Street. I was driving around for 15 minutes and didn't even notice a new sign. There were no works going on in the street, even now a few days later, and I still got a ticket, he said. Charles Kitchen of City Fibre Area Manager for Berry said, We completely understand that our works can cause some disruption, and we're doing all that we can to roll out our full fibre network in Berry as quickly and efficiently as possible with safety front of mind. Our build partner is in constant contact with West Suffolk Council to ensure site regulations are adhered to with all agreed permits in place. A spokesman for West Suffolk Council said, Our role is to enforce the parking restrictions in order that the work can go ahead. A new memorial has been installed in Bury St Edmunds Abbey Gardens, Rose Garden, to remember those who served in the Far East during World War II. The VJ Day Victory Over Japan Memorial was unveiled on Saturday at a service led by the very Reverend Joe Hawes, Dean of St Edmundsbury Cathedral, and Bernie Millard, Chairman of Bury St Edmunds Royal British Legion. 
Town councillors Peter Thompson and Patrick Chung help fund the monument and attend the service, along with the serving military, cadet groups, veterans and members of the public. The memorial was carved by Saxon Monumental after the British Legion sought permission from the Rose Garden Committee and English Heritage. The memorial is similar to the Normandy Veterans and the RAF Veterans Memorials and positioned in line, with them as a permanent reminder and place of remembrance for the Far East veterans, families and others to place flowers and wreaths. VJ Day was first celebrated on August the 15th, 1945. Nigel Walthensholm, Vice-Chairman of Bury St Edmunds Royal British Legion, said, The particular challenges are suffering resulting from the conflict fought in the Far East, now simply remembered as VJ Day, must for many reasons never be forgotten. Those who risked all to secure the future freedom that we now enjoy did not let us down. We must not let them down. Our branch committee is very thankful and everyone's support in this important addition to the Abbey Garden's Rose Garden. A very St Edmunds woman has spoken of her anger over a lack of disabled parking provision in a town centre after a 75-year-old husband injured himself in a fall. On April the 4th, Michael Atwell was out in Bury running errands with his wife, Chelsea. Mr Atwell's mobility is limited, but the couple struggle to find a parking space, and as a result, Mr Atwell was forced to walk a significant distance with the aid of a stick. Leaving the Santander branch in Abbeygate Street, he suffered a fall, hitting his head on the pavement. Mrs Atwell, 71, thanked the public and emergency responders for their assistance after the accident. Since his discharge from West Suffolk Hospital, she has been transporting her husband around in a wheelchair. She said there was not only a lack of disabled parking in the town centre, but that the existing spaces were abused by people who did not need them. Mrs Atwell said, People park in blue badge areas without a blue badge. If they had one, they'd display it. We just want somewhere we can park, and I can get him out of the car. Of course, he can't walk now at all. I've just gone and had to buy him a wheelchair. There aren't enough blue badge spaces, and as I say, people park in them without a blue badge. They're taking away parking spaces from people who need them. A spokesperson for West Suffolk Council said, We are sorry to hear of the fall the gentleman had while trying to get to his bank. Unfortunately, with the best will in the world, we cannot be everywhere at once, and we are unclear whether on this occasion the bay in question was being used legitimately by another blue badge holder. We do, however, carry out checks and issue fines to people not displaying a blue badge permit who have parked in the designated bays. And now we're going to move on to our general news. A celebration marking the completion of a multi-million pound roof project for the National Trust Ickworth House has taken place with the premiere of a community film. In 2019, the five million project to re-roof Ickworth's iconic rotunda began and in August 2020, after 270 miles of complex scaffolding was erected and 7,000 new Westmoreland stone slates were laid, the more than 200-year-old building was made watertight again. As part of the Ickworth Uncovered project, the Trust worked with a number of community partnerships to create a film called Spirit of Ickworth which was shown to invite guests at the Theatre Royal in Bury St Edmunds. The film, written by community writers who went to the site in the summer of 2021, was inspired by their visits and was part of a collaboration between the National Trust, Theatre Royal Creative Learning Department and West Suffolk College. Project manager Amy Monk said at the event that the restoration, which had been five years in the planning, set out to share the Rotunda's conservation story and felt it had done that. She said, 
A lot of our visitors have enjoyed seeing that side of Ickworth. They have certainly enjoyed taking a piece home from all of the Westmoreland slate that came down. Lots of it has been turned into projects such as a pizza oven, bird baths and signage. So this has also connected with people's homes, which is nice. It has been a journey with you all, and such a contribution has been made to Ickworth. The hours that have been put in to making it a success, when there were so many bumps in the road. I thank you all for everything you have contributed and put into, and I love it even more than we have been able to achieve this together. The film, which is made up of five stories and two poems, follows five people's integrated tales during a day in and around the moor, than 1,800 acres of parkland and gardens, as well as inside the building itself. Film director Denusia Iwasko worked with Lindsay Stevie, course director of West Suffolk College's creative media department, to film, produce and edit the project. Denusia said, Many people say that when you visit beautiful Ickworth House and Gardens in Suffolk, you feel a gentle healing presence in this historic house and gardens. The spirit of Ickworth is the story of the people who have encountered this spirit. Lindsay said she grew up playing in the grounds of Ickworth House, so she was very excited to be involved. She added, Production was very intensive, over four days, without breaks. Our small production team included a work colleague, a former student, plus three current students from the college, who had only been on their course for three weeks. I am so proud of the enthusiasm, focus and work that they have applied. The final result shows what a talented and creative community we have in Bury St Edmunds. A church in Bury St Edmunds has changed its name to show that everyone is welcome no matter what their background is. Horringer Court Community Church, HC3, in Glastonbury Road, within the grounds of the middle school, has held its name for 37 years, but it has now been renamed as the Inclusive Church. Stephen Jarrold, pastor at the church, said he hoped the name change would send out the message to everyone that the church would not discriminate on the grounds of disability, ethnicity, gender identity, mental health, sexuality or marital status. He said, a name is important and I think it reflects what you think your church should be about. One of the things I've been aware of most of my life is that people have ideas of what they think church is. One of the things that people feel, and this might be people who have never been to a church, is that church isn't welcoming, it's not relevant and certainly if they have a particular lifestyle they may prejudge a church's opinion. We wanted our name to say, everyone is welcome. The COVID-19 pandemic offered up an opportunity for the church to think about rebranding and look at ways to appeal to a wider society. Stephen said, you never really get a chance to stop completely and say, we're going to look at the whole thing again. Not long before the pandemic, we as leaders of the church had been discussing what our response would be to marginalised communities, and we agreed together that we wanted to be a welcoming church. Covid gave the opportunity to reflect and think about whether we're appealing to the people that we want to reach. With news that Horringer Court Middle School site will be closed in 2023, Stephen, along with other church leaders, decided to press on with the name change despite the uncertainty. He hopes that the council will allow them to remain where they are. He said, I'm hoping that Suffolk Council sees that there is a need and plenty of scope on that. It's a big site and if a community building is included we hope that we might get the chance to be a part of that. But if that isn't the case then we will have to consider where we're going to be. If you want to know more about the church you can visit www.inclusivechurch.uk St Edmundsbury Cathedral is set to showcase ancient manuscripts in an exhibition entitled St Edmundsbury Cathedral's Secrets of the Abbey, History Returns. For the first time in almost 500 years, 
seven ancient manuscripts from the Abbey Scriptorium were returned to the place where they were written in a free exhibition from May the 2nd until June the 8th. The Abbey's library had about 3,000 books by the time it was closed by Henry VIII in 1539, and of those, only 270 survived. Cambridge Libraries has, libraries has 154, with 121 in Pembroke College, which has loaned the manuscripts for the celebration. Alongside the manuscripts will be an exhibition detailing life at the Abbey, how the manuscripts were Abbey times. The exhibition was made possible by a heritage grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund. The Abbey 1000 celebrations are being coordinated by the Abbey 1000 CIC, which includes the Cathedral and the Abbey of St Edmund Heritage Partnership. Canon Matthew Vernon, who is part of the Abbey 1000 CIC, said, We are delighted to welcome back these ancient works to the site of the Abbey. The monks showed their religious commitment by creating objects of great artistic skill and beauty. These manuscripts are some of the amazing creations surviving today, which help us understand the life of the Abbey and its monks' faith in God. Tickets for the exhibition, which will be open Monday to Saturday, are now available and can be purchased from the cathedral. A Bradfield St George-based charity is benefiting from donations of timber from another charity, building 15 almshouses in Cambridge. Wood Monkey Workshop, which supports young people out of education and teaches them wood working skills, has been receiving offcuts of wood and pallets from Barnes Construction, contract of a Girton Town Charities Dove House Court project. Wood Monkey Workshop is using the donated timber to create bird boxes, signs, hedgehog homes and other items which are sold to fund maintenance and tools. Keith Colley, Wood Monkey founder, said, Donated materials are a real lifesaver. The Dove House Court deliveries have been fantastic and we really appreciate the support. Ukrainian refugees left in limbo while their applications awaited official approval by the Home Office have started to receive some good news. Last week we reported on the plight of refugees awaiting visas and approval to travel to their sponsors' homes in and around Bury St Edmunds, with some sheltering in basements as war raged outside. Following our report, some visas have been rubber stamps allowing preparations for refugees' arrivals to be made. Serena Last, who is set to welcome her friend Dahlia and five-year-old twins Emily and Melanie to her home, had been waiting for the twins' applications to be approved and feared for the family's safety in the meantime. On Friday, MP Joe Churchill's office contacted Serena to say the visas had been approved, meaning she was able to book their flights to the UK. Annie Page, who is ready to welcome a Ukrainian woman to her very home, received news on Monday that the visa had been approved. The official letter is still to be issued, but Annie said at least she can plan to travel now. Emily Floman, who is set to host a mum and her eight-year-old son, is still waiting for news as the boy did not have a passport before fleeing to Germany. The mum said she can't keep going like this. She has no money and she's living in a small room of a student's apartment. Her son is traumatised, said Annie. A former swimming pool building in Mildenhall, which has been a target of significant antisocial behaviour, is to be demolished. West Suffolk Council has submitted an order to demolish the empty building in Recreation Way as part of plans to improve the town's memorial garden and create electric vehicle charging points. The swimming pool, built in 1975, was replaced with larger and more modern facilities at the Mildenhall Hub. 
A planning statement said since becoming vacant, the building has attracted significant antisocial behaviour. The council has installed steel security fencing as well as steel door and window shutters. The ongoing antisocial behaviour remains, however, and is becoming a nuisance to residents, police and businesses alike, the statement said. The demolition of the building includes a pool hall, changing rooms, offices, plant room, toilets and outbuilding. The statement added, the entire site will be securely fenced by the appointed demolition contractor for the duration of the demolition works and dust screening added. Council spokesman said there would then be investment in the memorial garden to make it more accessible and inviting for the community. Two electric vehicle rapid charging points with parking would be installed and a path widened for better pedestrian safety. Councillor Sarah Broughton, portfolio holder for resources and property, said Now that the Milden Hall hub is open and doing so well, we can make interim plans to demolish the old site and improve the area. The Museum of East Anglian Life in Stonemarket has confirmed it has officially adopted its new name. The centre, which celebrates everything about living in the east of England, said it is filling a gap in becoming the first permanent museum focused on food in the UK, has confirmed its new name is the Food Museum. Plans to change the name of the museum were first formulated back in 2018. Museum Director Jenny Cousins said, The museum has existed for 55 years and the change is motivated by a recognition that as our audiences have changed, so should we. We are excited about the possibilities that the new direction opens up. Everybody eats and therefore everyone can relate to food in some way. We think that the potential is huge. It is also in line with the heritage that we already care for. East Anglia was known as Britain's breadbasket. We want to honour the journey that the museum has already made and the contributions of generations of volunteers, staff and supporters. Local heritage remains a priority. Our travelling exhibition, Food Stories, is visiting 20 villages in Suffolk, Norfolk and Essex this year to collect local dialect memories and recipes starting at the end of this month. The museum's name change sparked a controversy as a petition called Save the Museum of East Anglian Life was set up by residents who were concerned it would mean the loss of the only institution established to celebrate and preserve East Anglian culture, heritage and history. The first annual exhibition in a new exhibition space is a collaboration with young curator-artist collective Our Isles to explore the intersection between farming and nature through hedgerows. This will open at the end of June along with the relaunch of the museum and cafe in summer and the completion of a watermill restoration to working order and a sculptural trail along the river. Councillor Gerard Brewster, Cabinet Member for Economic Growth at Mid-Suffolk District Council said, Mid-Suffolk District Council supports the overall development of the museum's master plan and recognises its importance as a key cultural and tourism attraction for Suffolk and beyond. We will continue to support the museum in every aspect we can to assure its long-term success and the contribution is made to the cultural sector in attracting visitors to the region. The renowned author of the Horrible Histories stories has launched his new book celebrating the grotty history of Suffolk. Terry Deary's Terrible Tales of Moises Hall Museum was written especially for the museum. He uses narrative as well as characters, real and imagined, to explore topics including the Red Barn Murder, the Gibbet Cage, Witchcraft, St Edmund, Mary Tudor and the Battle of Fornham. The eight short stories, along with extra pieces written by the museum's curatorial team, are illustrated by Suffolk-based artist Glenn Pickering. 
Mr. Deary launched the book at a series of sell-out events at Moise's Hence. At Moise. Oh, now we're going to move on to our letters. My first letter is written by Barry Peters, and he's actually the editor, and I think it's the Berry Free Press. And he heads the letter, The weight of expectation is a heavy one indeed. We all clapped for carers and the NHS in the midst of the pandemic. Those at the front line of the fight against the COVID nightmare deserved and still deserve our thanks and admiration. But much like the police and the fire service, we expect an awful lot of our blue light workers. Hannah's Clark story is a worrying one, a mother of two thinking she was at home with two children while having a potential heart attack. What would you do? What would you hope for? We often bemoan the lack of bobbies on the beat because we've enjoyed that luxury in the past. We expect a certain service level for fire and ambulance responses. The frontline workers aren't to blame in most cases. It's a lack of investment, cutbacks or the dreaded efficiencies. The weight of expectation bears down heavily on the services we demand in our hour of need. So the investigation into what happened with this Barrow mum is timely and welcome. It needs to be made public too, so we all know what to expect in our time of need. And this letter is from Nigel Wakefield of Berry and Edmonds and he's headed it this lane was close to traffic once before. Having received written notification from West Suffolk Council about the above application, I looked it up online. There are some 84 documents, each of which include multiple plans, tables, reports, etc., such that there is quite a lot to read through. However, one item stood out for me which should be brought to the attention of your readers, the proposed closure of Gypsy Lane. This is a single track with passing places that runs from the B1066 to the A143 junction to Horsecroft Road. Despite its small and apparently insignificant nature, this is a comparatively busy lane, which doesn't just serve as a shortcut to the hospital site. The proposal is to make Gypsy Lane a pedestrian and cycle route only. As a regular walker of this lane over 30 years on different days of the week at different times of the day and throughout the year, I was quite pleased when 15 or 20 years ago the lane was closed to traffic at one end, but with cycles permitted. This scheme survived for a few months before the current situation was reinstated. It transpired that Gypsy Lane was considered an important link for vehicular access to the villages and hamlets located to the south of Bury. Its closure had resulted in considerable discomfort for the residents of those villages. I recall the story in the Berry Free Press on its reopening to vehicular traffic with a local councillor quoting that they'd been misled about the benefits of the closure. Clearly someone doesn't know the history of Gypsy Lane or understand the full implications of closing it to traffic. The planning application number DC stroke 22 stroke 0593 stroke HYB can be seen at the West Suffolk Council website by accessing the View Planning Applications page and entering the application number above. The Queen Elizabeth, brackets Kings Lynn, and James Paget, Goldston, suffer the same age-related defects as the West Suffolk Hospital. This new hospital must be built, and the proposal to retain so many of the later developments on the site make this a sensible and economic proposal. So please... Any comment against the proposal should be given with compromise in mind. Uh, my next letter is from Graham Day uh, from Stowmarket. He heads the letter, Ministers are showing a lack of compassion. In any time of crisis, the British public always will rise up to the challenge and always do their best to help. It has been seen with the Ukraine war, families offering their homes for refugees, and then on breakfast television, two schoolboys, Jacob and Oliver from Wolverhampton, 
performing an adaptation of the Beatles song Let It Be, titled Let Them Be, to raise money for the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. What was also heartening and remarkable was that the Beatles Museum in Liverpool let them perform the song using John Lennon's piano. However, bureaucracy and crass incompetence by the Home Office is allowing only a trickle of Ukrainians to arrive in the UK. Even the director of the Red Cross can see a simpler approach. The question needs to be asked, Is the Home Secretary so wedded to tighter immigration rules which she introduced that she is incapable or does not want to show compassion? What is worse is that my local MP, Joe Churchill, when asked to help by bewildered families, can only say, I would chase it up. Breathtaking incompetence, indifference and a lack of compassion by elected politicians. Thankfully, the UK population put them to shame. We must remember this at the next election and act accordingly. John Watkin, writing via email, says, Remove signs when work is finished. Barry St Edmunds used to be a tidy town, but it now has highway signs that are still saying diversion, even though the work has finished. Bollards on the highway, either broken or needing cleaning, and there is a collapsed drain in Victoria Street with a cone round it. I think the Covid excuse has worn a bit thin now. Please keep making sure all sides are removed when finished. My next letter is from Catherine Gostin and she is in Bury St Edmunds. Her letter starts with, Pothole request goes unanswered. Suffolk County Council treats us with derision. I live in Zone D, Bury St Edmunds, and have a number of occasions asked them to fill in the really bad pothole outside my front door. It is so bad that every car passing over it causes an unbearable noise. This state of affairs is very damaging for the very old houses in Zone D and Guildhall Street, can be very busy with delivery vans and cars all day. What is a resident to do? Tom Owen is the director of My Home Life England and he writes under the heading Schemes a Boost for Young and Old. Many of us are painfully aware of how isolated we've become over the past two years. The pandemic affected two groups in particular, care home residents and school children. A wonderful new initiative now hopes to bring older and younger members of our communities together. The nationwide Become a Care Home Friend scheme invites schools across the country to join a 10-week programme of activities that will build meaningful, much-needed links with care homes and foster understanding between the generations. Children and older people get so much out of relationship with each other, but their contact can be very limited. This project will boost children's self-esteem by allowing them to make a positive difference to others and it will help care home residents feel more connected to their local community. We've seen so much joy, fun and energy in similar initiatives so we warmly encourage schools to take part. One youngster who's made new friends through our work said I feel overjoyed because we made word searches for the older people And that makes me feel nice. I think that says it all. (laughs) I think it probably does. (laughs) Um, Right, my last letter is from Simon Harding, and he is also from Bury St Edmunds. Put your heads above the parapet. Regarding the Abbotsvale development, (coughs) namely the 1,250 new homes to be crammed onto just 175 acres along a Rushbrook lane bordering the Lark, inevitably unacceptable pollution and loss will follow, whether it be traffic, water quality in the Lark or the unique local fauna and flora. We see the disaster unfolding as the Marham Park estate grows, with far more homes than we were told about, 
with totally inadequate parking. And now the real risk, the promised community centre and the playing fields will be scrapped for yet more houses. Please, councillors, town and borough, and other interest groups such as the Berry Society, Berry St Edmunds Past and Present Society, the Churchgate Area Association and all the others. Now is the time to put your heads above the parapet, saying enough is enough. OK, you may get shot at by the vested interests, so what? Yes, of course we need more affordable homes to buy or rent. East Suffolk has shown the vision to engage a full-time officer to identify and bring back into occupation the hundreds of empty homes West Suffolk could easily do the same. And to bring our letters section to a close, a very short letter from Rosemary Edwards of Old Buckingham. Rosemary writes, I don't want more nuclear reactors in my country. The naysayers of solar and wind power ought to step down their outmoded objections. If not, nuclear fission will proliferate with all of its negatives. Not a solution. We also should make greater effort to reduce our energy use. And now we're going back to uh, two or three more general news. Um, my first one is a, uh, well, it's about a rather remarkable lady. It's Meet the World's Oldest Competitor Squash Player. 85-year-old Margaret Armstrong from Dalham discovered the title was hers after her application to Guinness World Records was officially approved. The grandmother, who has been playing squash most of her adult life, plays twice a week at the Morton Hall Health Club in Bury St Edmunds and her regular partner, Betty Alban. Someone first suggested to me about two years ago that I contacted the world record people and when I checked up, I found it was then an 84-year-old that had the title, said Margaret. So I hung around a bit. She said she had to supply the record keepers with her birth certificate, an adequate referee and to verify she was actively playing. Liverpool-born Margaret first started playing squash when she moved south, uh, south of the Middlesex. I had been a keen tennis player, but at that time there was virtually no covered courts, so you often travelled along distances to play competitive matches, only to have to sit around waiting for the rain to stop. I don't think I really even heard of squash until we loved to move to London, she said. I saw there were some courts where we played in Pinner, and I thought, I think I will have a go at this silly game. And it turned out I was rather good at it. She joined the Northwood Squash Club in Pinner, which had something of a reputation and used to invite visiting squash champions to play on its courts. Among the Egyptian star player Abu Talib, who during the 1960s won the British Open three times. He watched me play and saw I could hit the ball and started coaching me, said Margaret. She ended up playing for Middlesex and took part in the British Open Championship, but found herself playing Australian superstar Heather McKay, who was 16 times British Open Championship between 1962 and 1977, and only lost two matches in her entire career. I drew her in the first round of the Open, and that was that, said Margaret. Margaret's enthusiasm for squash is even more remarkable, considering seven years ago she also lost her left foot in a road crash. They had to reattach my foot using a titanium plate, and I have around 18 pins in my ankle and a few in my knee, she said. I suppose you could call me the bionic woman, and it's certainly fun at the airports when I always set all the alarms going. <laughs> I bet, has, I bet she does. That's fun there. <laughs> I bet she does. <laughs> anyway, uh, you probably remember uh, Abbey News trading for many years on uh, Hatter Street. Well, here's what happened to their shop after they closed. A prominent Bury St Edmunds shop, which became vacant, was quickly snapped up by another established town business moving up the same street to bigger premises. 
Ellie Mae Boo Antiques. Yes, that is her name, Ellie Mae Boo Antiques, owned by Elaine McArdle, made the move to number two Langton Place in the town, which also adjoins Hatter Street, after Abbey News traded there for the last time in February, after 32 years. The new shop, which officially opened on April the 5th, will use the three large display windows to the fullest to draw people into its eclectic mix of antique and vintage items. Elaine said, We were delighted to be offered the opportunity to move to these larger premises, which showcases our items in a complimentary, light and airy space. We have established a good customer base over the last two years, and our business continues to support the ethos of investing in quality, unique antique pieces which can be enjoyed for many years. With the help of shop dog Rufus, <coughs> yes, that really is what I said, shop dog Rufus, Elaine manages nine dealers who rent cabinets within the shop, each offering their own particular interest and expert knowledge, ranging from the late 18th to the late 20th century. Items include decorative and utility from all the major style periods, along with silver, jewellery, watches, original art, coins and militaria. Together with these items there is a range of crystal stemware, studio pottery and collectible Beatrix Potter figurines. Elaine and her husband Mark's specialities lies in antique lighting, so they also have a wide range of Victorian oil lamps, accessories, vintage lamps and ceiling shades on offer and can give advice and assistance on special requests. Our discerning customers find inspiration amongst our stock for gifts, individual interior items for the home and cherished pieces to be included within a collection, Elaine said. We look forward to welcoming customers old and new to our lovely shop. Ellie Mae Boo will be open Tuesday to Friday between 10am and 4 and on Saturday between 9.30am and 4pm. Uh, just before I read my uh, next article, um, I'm going to give the answer to last week's quiz question. Uh, and the question was, in which ship did Bartholomew Gosnell sail, sail in 1606? Was it the Mayflower or was it the Cutty Sark or Godspeed? I wonder how many of you got it right. The answer is Godspeed. Okay, the next article, it, well, it's a bit of nostalgia, really, and it's locked into the past. With the recent news that a planning application will soon be going in for the conversion of the former Bury St Edmunds Magistrates Courts building on Honey Hill into apartments, it will be an interesting logistical conundrum how it is to be achieved because... After its closure in October 2016, because of the government's austerity acts, the building which also faces into the Great Churchyard was Grade 2 listed in November 2018. This fine neoclassical building, built to designs of architect Archie Ainsworth Hunt in 1906 and 1907, superseded the Shah Hall a rather grand-looking building with pediment and columns of 1841. It was soon obvious, however, that looks are not everything, and the building was not really fit for purpose. The bull was taken by the horns, and it was demolished. Archibald Hunt was born in Harlow in 1868 and went on to qualify as an architect. On marrying Jenny Ainsworth Thorber in 1896, he moved in with her parents in Sudbury, setting up an architectural practice on Market Street there. Adapting her middle name as his own, he successfully submitted plans for a new court building in the Guild Hall Theophys, the owners of the Shah Hall, the cost to build 10340 on the back of his appointment, from 1908, he moved his practice to Abbeygate Street, expanding his business by becoming the part-time West Suffolk County architect and by designing for the College Square almshouses in 1909. 
Ten years later, he went into partnership with C.L. Coates. The practice name, Hunt and Coates. After his wife Jenny died in 1929, Archibald married Winifred Ellen Evans, and they lived in Great Barton. By then, he was specialising in church restoration, and for many years was the diocese architect for the diocese of St Edmundsbury and Ipswich, and was created by an Act of Parliament in December 1913, St James's becoming the cathedral in January 1914. Archie never had any children and died in Bury in 1949, aged 81. Suffolk County Council would eventually purchase the Magistrates' Courts building. My next item is headed by the editor, Do You Remember? And I suspect many of us will. It says, Did you stop off for a bite at one of Suffolk's little chef diners? It used to be a common sight for those driving along major roads in Suffolk, but do you remember tucking into a meal at a little chef? Founded in 1958, the chain became a popular spot throughout the country from the 1980s to the 2000s, before the chain folded in 2017. The company had many restaurants which were located in Suffolk, with some of its most popular in Ipswich, Barton Mills and Hawley. One well, even got a taste of royalty when Prince Harry paid a visit to the Barton Mills Little Chef in 2007, ordering an Olympic breakfast meal. Harry, then 22, paid his visit while he was training at the Stanter Battleground near Thetford. A look at a menu from the mid-2000s shows a 12-ounce sirloin steak on offer for £12.49, along with an Olympic breakfast available for £6.99, alongside other culinary delights. The former Little Chef restaurant on the A14 bypass in Ipswich closed down in 2013, when there were plans to turn it into a training and conference space for Shell UK. There were also plans to turn the former Hawley Little Chef into a place of worship in 2014. Hair coursing falls by a third following police crackdown. <clears throat> Suffolk Police teamed up with six other forces in September 2021 in a borderless scheme to tackle rural crime. As a result, it was found that incidents of hair coursing across the seven force areas fell from 2044 to 2020-21 to 1,415 the following year, a drop of 31%. Borders between the forces of Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire, Hertfordshire, Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex and Kent were removed when using certain tactics making apprehending and prosecuting offenders easier. Over the past six months, this is said to have helped with the use of automatic number plate recognition and the sharing of all interactions and movements of people suspected to be involved in hair coursing. The move also supports the ongoing national initiative against hair coursing Operation Galileo. Hair coursing traditionally begins in September when the fields have been harvested and ploughed, making them the perfect ground for the illegal blood sport. Hair coursing causes damage to crops, harms animal welfare and threatens the rural community and can result in intimidation and violence. Sergeant Brian Culver from Suffolk Rural and Wildlife Team said, Hair coursing is a huge issue for farmers and landowners, with many people living in fear of these criminals. This illegal activity damages property, threatens people's incomes and subjects people to fear and intimidation, as well as causing unnecessary harm to our wildlife. Our tactics, together with the issuing of community protection warnings, community protection notices and the granting of criminal behaviour orders, has been a region-wide reduction of causing incidents by almost a third. This is a great achievement by all seven forces and the CPSs. Our collaboration shows how determined we are to tackle the barbaric actions 
of a few that cause significant physical and mental harm to those in our rural communities. We will continue with the collaboration and continue to work together to further reduce illegal coursing, lamping and poaching. Uh, this article is by Martin Taylor and is in connection with the celebrations to mark the millennium of the Abbey of St Edmundsbury, which, as you know, has been postponed and is now being celebrated this year, 2022. And he's headed his article, What Did Abbey Look Like? It's an interesting question because, of course, we only have the ruins to show us the rough idea now. Anyway, Martin writes... The Abbey of St Edmund would have to wait over 200 years before any real investigations of its past were made known. By antiquarians such as John Batley in 1745, Edmund Gillingwater 1804, Richard Yates 1805, Samuel Timms 1854, Gordon Hills in 1865 and Emma James in 1895. Early to mid-20th century accounts by several authors and scholars, particularly Antonia Granston, have broadened our depth of knowledge immensely, and in recent years there has been a proliferation of books on the history of the Abbey and the town. We must not forget that the town is an important integral part of the history of this institution. No Abbey, no town. Archaeologists such as A. R. Duffy, C. A. Rayleigh Radford and Martin Biddle all have contributed to an in-depth knowledge of what lies beneath. In the past there have been various visual depictions as to how the Abbey might have once appeared by artists such as Arthur Lancaster and William K. Hardy, the latter's painting on show in the cathedral probably the most used. Archaeologist Arthur B. Whittingham's comprehensive plan from 1954 using its footprint is a very good version on how the Abbey once looked. His legacy of the Abbey's layout will probably never be beaten until a virtual Abbey is produced. Incidentally, Dr Stephen Brindle, Senior Historian of English Heritage, in 2021, conducted an amazing graphic reconstruction interpretation of the Abbey. In 2018, the Abbey of St Edmund Heritage Partnership commissioned two appraisals of the Abbey. The first by Richard Hoggett, Heritage, with a heritage assessment, the most comprehensive so far, utilising records, drawings, maps, etc., fully numerated and catalogued, a remarkable piece of work. The second, a thorough conservation plan from Norwich architects Purcells, who detailed what is required for the future of the ruins. Among its recommended actions are that there is a concerted effort to update this plan every five years, also to conduct heritage impact assessments, implement planned and coordinated programmes of repair and maintenance, and importantly, ensure work is conducted by skilled, experienced staff, contractors and consultants. Obviously, where there are areas at risk with problems occurring, these need to be prioritised by English heritage. They took over responsibility from the Department of the Environment, which itself was formerly the Ministry of Public Buildings and Works in 1983-1984. Well, we are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory <coughs> stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number you have been given or you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, it's goodbye from Harvey, from Sue and Sue. <laughs> <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association.
You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedensburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.